All right, so I'm being live streamed. Hey, everybody, give me one second. Um, yeah, so says I'm being live streamed. <laughs> I'm coming to you um, for the first time in a while, probably uh, first time in 2023. Can you believe it's already February? And so I don't know. <clears throat> If anybody's going to jump on the live video, but some of you may watch the uh, the replay, hopefully. And um, also, I'm late. Usually, I jump on around 10 o'clock my time, and it's a little bit after 11 o'clock my time. And I decided kind of spontaneously to just go ahead and jump on. Um, had some issues with technology and what have you this morning. <laughs> Shocker, I know. But it's been a while since I've done this, and things have changed on with Facebook Live and stuff like that. I had to do updates and stuff like that. And then I just wasn't sure if I was going to jump on or not at all. But, alas, here I am. So, anyway, if anybody's getting a chance to watch this, uh, that would be great. And if you're watching it later, thanks. I just want to throw some ideas out and, uh, again, just kind of jump on and do some thinking out loud about stuff. One of the things I came across this week, Sorry, my eyes have been really watering and bothering me a lot lately. So I don't know, pollen count is higher here or what. But anyway, uh, one of the things that I discovered this week is that winners of the Nobel Prize in Physics for 2022, that award was given out to some people. Let me see if I can find them real quick um, and give them their due. Ah, I'm going to have to look it up. I thought I had it pulled up here. Um, if I'm talking about Nobel Prize winners, I should give them their due, right? Alan Aspect, Anton Zellinger, and John Klosser. Uh, these three gentlemen were given the Nobel Prize in physics in 2022 for their work on something known as Bell's Theorem and their experiments that they were able to accomplish and do in, uh, in laboratories that essentially show from a scientific perspective that the universe is not real and not local. Now I know that's that. <laughs> what does that mean, Aaron? Right? <clears throat> and I don't know. I'm kind of playing around with some of this stuff because I'm definitely, you know, quantum physics is above my pay grade and above my intellect. But I can uh, read articles and uh, listen to people. And study people who were able to take these complexities and dumb them down for the rest of us. And then I can just kind of spit it out. But the reason I want to talk about this is because it connects directly to things that I was talking about for the last couple of years. Specifically, it connects to consciousness and reality and it connects to our limitations about what we can know based upon the scientific method. And some people are lauding the work of these 
Nobel Prize physicists as being revolutionary and to the to like like to a really big degree like like to an Albert Einstein level actually and actually what they did through their experiments is that they proved uh Albert Einstein wrong in some aspects of his theory of relativity and they tended to side more with Neil Bohr's now I don't want to bore you <laughs> with a lot of information that may not be relevant or may not be of interest to you about quantum physics and uh the trajectory of how we understand reality based on breakthroughs in the 20th century or based on the study of small particles. So the word quantum or quanta, it just means uh, this idea of breaking things down to their smallest particles or their microscopic particles. So we're talking about protons and neutrons and electrons and strings and stuff like that. So I think most people know that everything material, at least as far as we know, is made up of atoms and atoms have these smaller quantum particles inside of them. Now, what's so fascinating and troubling, I mean, you read these guys that, you know, are able to understand and interpret the data and understand this stuff and understand these theories and experiments. And like I said, dumb them down for the rest of us. They talk a lot about these things being scary, being weird, uh, because they don't have good explanations for them. And here's, here's what is interesting to me about human, human beings and the way we think. When we don't have a good explanation for something, it's amazing how much we try to take something and fit it into our current paradigm. And what I mean by paradigm is our overall or overarching way of viewing the world. Your paradigm isn't just the way you look at something. It isn't just the way you think about something. It's your, <clears throat> your paradigm is made up of your unconscious or subconscious presuppositions. Now, presupposition is something that you have to hold in your mind and supposed to be true in order for a sentence, let's say, or an experience to make sense to you. In order to make sense out of the experience, out of the experience, you have to hold certain presuppositions in place. So, for example, if I were to say to a friend today, I went live on Facebook. In order for them to understand what I was doing, they have to have some former knowledge about what Facebook is. They have to have some knowledge about what live videos are. They would then be able to presuppose that I had a computer or a phone, that I had a camera. They can presuppose that perhaps there were, there was an audience out there. They can, they know that I have a Facebook a page or a Facebook account. See, all those things have to be true in order for the statement, I went live on Facebook today, to make any kind of sense. So, in other words, presuppositions are these, that in order for what you're saying to be true and for me to understand it, there are layers and layers and layers and layers of presuppositions. We can go even further. They presuppose that I know how to use a computer. <laughs> they can presuppose uh, not only that I have a Facebook account, but that I have a computer, that my computer has a camera, that I know how to use my computer, that uh, you see all that stuff. You can just keep going and going and going. But 
in reality, for your consciousness, cognitively, you have to hold those things as being true in order for the statement, I went live on Facebook today, to make any kind of sense or for it to be true. So for one thing to be true, there are layers of presuppositions underneath that that we hold to be true in order for that to be true. And so when our world gets shaken, or when our views of reality get shaken, or there's something out there in the world that we don't understand, most of the time what people do is try to make what they don't understand fit their presuppositions, and here's the problem, they're not even conscious of their presuppositions. And in this case, when when we're talking about the universe not being real, and I'll get to what I mean by that in a minute, when we talk about the universe not being real, what they're saying is, is that things in the quantum world matter when we study its smallest particles, does not behave at all like we understand the macro universe to relate. Or, or to behave. And if everything in the macro universe is made up of these tiny particles in the micro universe, they should behave the same as above, so below, right? As with the macro, so with the micro. But it doesn't. In fact, it behaves in ways that are completely contrary to how we understand the world. So the problem that we have is humanity, the problem, I'm going to do this, you can't not do it, you can't not have presuppositions, but you can be aware of them. And the problem that we have then is that we force everything to fit our presuppositions, which is okay, like I said, you can't not do it, but we do it with such certainty that we get into arguments and we alienate people or we insult people, we insult their intelligence or whatever the case may be because they don't think like us or they don't share our view of reality. And this goes on in the scientific community. Let me tell you something. Every system known to man has its status and its hierarchy and its power structures, every system. So obviously political systems, patriarchy, um, the corporate world, right? Uh, the military, churches and religion. We've got bishops and archbishops and cardinals and all that bullshit. And, <laughs> and then we sit there and argue and, but what I'm saying is that there's something within us that our egos are seeking status and, and stuff like that. And I've seen it in churches. Obviously we can see it in politics, I've seen it in the corporate world. Some of you that are in the military, I'm sure you've seen that in the military. But I'm going to tell you, it exists in the academic world. After having worked in the academic world for six years, ego, baby, ego. I know and you don't. I've got the Ph.D. I've got the doctorate degree. I'm the one who's published. I'm published in so many, you know, academic journals and this and that and the other thing. And it's it's ego on steroids. And so scientific research is being governed by these academic institutions, these academic journals, and so forth. And it's also being uh, funded. So <laughs> it's being governed by hierarchies of people at the top that have the same kind of ego problems that you see in every other system that humanity creates. And it's also either funded or underfunded. And there, there's just all kinds of stuff that goes into that. And so things get marked as pseudoscience or ideas that are unsubstantial 
And then people will literally almost bully people into saying, well, you, I understand something that you don't understand because I'm the one with the letters after my name, which just means you did a, a shit ton of work, really. <laughs> you did a shit ton of work to get those and paid a shit ton of money to get those letters behind your name. Now, I'm not dogging on education. I believe in education. I believe in expertise. And I'm approaching this topic today about the universe not being real with fear and trembling. <laughs> because I, I understand that, you know, there's a lot that I don't know that I don't know. But my point is, I do know this. I do know cognitive thought. I do know neuroscience. I do know psychology. And so I know how these human behaviors can affect the way information is put out or what we do with the information that we have. So when, when I say the universe is not real or when I say that the Nobel Prize winners last year, uh, in physics showed that the universe was not real, what are we talking about? So realism and locality. Let me see if I can pull that up. Uh-huh. Yeah, the idea of local realism, I'm just going to read you a definition real quick to make it simple. Local realism (laughs) is a quick way of seeing two principles. Principle one of locality or location means the cause of a physical change must be local. The cause of a physical change must be local. So to give you an example, I have here a wine bottle Opener, not a corkscrew, but a wine bottle opener. Now, when I pull it out, you see these ends, and these ends go in on either side of the cork, and you pop the cork out. When I put it back in, so what locality says is, is the only way for this wine opener to come out of its case is for something to locally act on it. In other words, if this wine opener was in a drawer upstairs in our kitchen and no one was around, it would have no way of coming out of its case. So in order for something to change, in order for something to happen, there has to be a local force, there has to be location that acts upon something When I'm picking up my cup of coffee, the cup is able to move in the air because I'm acting on it, but I can only act on it because I'm in proximity to it. I'm closeness. So location, that's, that's locality. That locality has to do with cause and effect. It's a base presupposition of cause and effect. So again, if I were to say I took a drink of my coffee, the presuppositions would be that I had a cup that I had coffee, <laughs> that I'm able to swallow, right? Presupposition is that I like coffee. I mean, but the presuppositions are based on locality. So no matter what the scientific experiment or data, everything we think or know about cause and effect is that cause and effect or change is local. Now, oh, come on. I just, how did that happen? 
I just lost my definition. <laughs> Hold on one second. I'm sorry. I'm a mess this morning. Um, or this afternoon or this evening, wherever <laughs> it's this morning for me still. Um, and then the principle of realism, the principle of realism. This is even more interesting. Properties of objects are real and exist in our physical universe independent of our minds. I'm going to read that again. Principle of realism says properties of objects are real and exist in our physical universe independent of our minds. Again, we're coming down to the foundation of scientific theory and the scientific method because everything in the scientific method says something must be measurable, right? You have to have data. You need to be able to measure. You, you have to have measurable data, measurable data about this phenomenon in order for it to be true. And it's based on this presupposition that the world exists out there independently of observation in quantifiable properties. And that's the key, that it exists in quantifiable properties out there, regardless of the observer or independent of observation. So... The idea then is, if a tree falls in the forest, you've all heard this, if the tree falls in a forest and no one's around to hear it, does it make a sound? And physics and science would undoubtedly come back and say, absolutely, it makes a sound. It falls. When it falls, it generates sound waves, and these sound waves exist whether there is an ear or a person to pick them up and interpret them and know what happened or not. The whole scientific theory and scientific method is designed to take the observer out of the equation, but that's based on the presupposition that there's something real out there in measurable, quantifiable properties. And so what these guys got the Nobel Prize for was they were able to conduct experiments. No idea how they did this. I have no idea how people conduct or prove in a laboratory something on a quantum level. But they were able to prove in laboratories that the universe, that that the reality is non-local and not real. So in other words, their evidence, as I understand it, would seem to indicate that if a tree falls in the forest, it doesn't make a sound if no one's around to hear it. In fact, it may not even exist if no one's around <laughs> to hear it. All right, so how'd they do this? So let me just talk a little bit about how they did this uh, or, or give you give you an idea of what this what this is showing. So you may or may not have heard of the double slit experiment. And does reality exist as a wave or as a particle? Um, most people are kind of familiar with that. What they found in this double slit experiment 
I don't want to go into a lot of detail on this, but if you want me to, I can do some follow-ups on this. But the double slit experiment, what they found was that matter would act like a wave. So you can think about, you can think about somebody putting a screen, a wall. They're doing, let's say, some kind of, some form of modern art or something. They've got a canvas and they put a slit, um, in front of this canvas. Right. And then they take paint and they just start throwing it. And as it goes through the slit, it's going to leave a certain splatter pattern on the canvas. That's reality acting like waves. Right. What they found was that if you took an observer out of the room, I'm oversimplifying this. And if somebody out there is more into quantum physics, please feel free to, you know, correct me. Or if you're an expert at this, I'd love to have you on and just do conversation. But if you took an observer out of the room and you had a mechanism that was able to spray paint, it would stick to the canvas and you could come back in the room and you would discover a specific wave pattern stuck to the canvas. That would be very different. Then the pattern, let's say, if you had a target and you had a slit and you were firing a pistol at it, you were firing bullets at it. If I was firing bullets at it or if I was throwing darts, we want to use that, then it has, it's going to leave a totally different pattern. It's not going to be a wave pattern. It's going to be a dot pattern, right? <clears throat> and it can't go through the slit or split the slit. It's got to go on one side of the slit or the other side of the slit. So what they found out is that if someone was, you run the same exact experiment, but someone's watching it, when someone's watching it, now the pattern totally changes. It's not a wave pattern that splatters onto a canvas. It's more like a dot pattern or a particle pattern that goes into a target from bullets or darts or something like that. So, what they found was that reality changes its expression when an observer is present. Now, quantum entanglement would say that if two quantum particles are locally in some kind of a relationship next to each other, and the way this is often explained is think about it like some gears. So if one particle is spinning clockwise, the other particle is going to be spinning counterclockwise because they're interacting with locality and that cause and effect exchange is happening. What they found out was you can take these same particles once they become what they call entangled and you can separate them and you can spin one clockwise and the other one will spin automatically counterclockwise. Then you can turn that one to clockwise and this one over here will automatically go counterclockwise uh, with no time for that information to be sent, right? So <clears throat> what these guys were able to show in their experiments is that you can take two quantum particles and you can put them on opposite ends of the universe. Now, one of the beliefs about the laws of physics is that nothing can move faster than the speed of light. So it always amazed me when I was a child when people explained to me light years, and I would look up at the stars and realize that every star that I'm seeing 
the light that I'm seeing now, the light that I saw last night, left that star millions and maybe even billions of years ago. And it took light millions of years to travel far enough for me to be able to see it. That's the distance. So what they were able to do was they were able to take these particles and say, you can put one particle, you can put this particle on one end of the universe and this particle on the other end of the universe, millions or billions or zillions of light years away. And you can, if it was possible to measure one, you can turn it counterclockwise and immediately this particle over here is going to turn clockwise. You could look at it. Another way, let's say that you were flipping a coin, you were having a coin toss, and you were calling heads. So if there's two people having a coin toss, I call heads. If I get heads, you got tails automatically, right? And the probabilities would be 50-50. So if you flipped a coin often enough and you kept track of it, eventually you're going to get closer and closer and closer to 50%. Of the time, it's heads, and 50% of the times, time, it's tails. Well, what this experiment shows is that if these two particles, let's say, or let's make it like people, let's say you have Jimmy and Jane, and Jimmy's on one end of the universe, and Jane is on the other end of the universe, and you do the coin toss with Jimmy, Jimmy's going to flip the coin and know that he got heads, And at the same exact time, Jane is going to know that Jimmy got heads or that she got tails in this case. And then she flips the coin. She gets tails this time. Jimmy's going to know immediately, instantaneously, that he got heads. So in other words, there's some kind of information exchange. So here's the theory. That information is non-local. That information, or at least that information travels faster than the speed of light, or that somehow information is being exchanged from one quantum particle to another quantum particle, and it's not having to travel any distance in order to do that. So that's the non-locality piece of it. And the wave particle experiment, the double slit experiment, is kind of the the non-realism part of it. And I'd have to dive in deeper into the experiments about realism. But here's the point that I want to bring this around to. Now, here's here's another critique. One interesting critique of this theory is that we assume it's information and there are people that, that have caught on to the fact that we have a tendency to take our worldview and shove everything into our worldview or shove everything into our presuppositions. And they're saying, no, we live in an information age. Everything is about computation and information in the age in which we live. And so we're just taking this immersion that we have in information and computation and we're extrapolating it to the realm of physics, we're applying it to a realm of physics when it doesn't apply, and we're assuming into the model that information is being exchanged. I'm totally okay with that. I think we are assuming into the model. I think the the truth is is that we don't, you know, 
quantum physicists don't know what the hell is going on. But see, here's the thing. When you don't know what the hell is going on, then it's open territory for any theory. And no one theory is better than another theory. I mean, there are some, I'm sure, that come closer to the truth and someone that's smart enough to evaluate that could say, no, 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 that can't exist because of this, 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 and this. But my point is, if we don't know, we don't know. And if we don't know, then it's wide open, right? So I'm saying this to say this. We put so much certainty. This is, this is what's crazy. And what's really interesting and fascinating, if you follow me at all, uh, I've talked about the work of a guy named Dr. Donald Hoffman, who wrote a book called The Case Against Reality. And he's coming to these same conclusions about non-realism and non-locality, but he's doing it from the study of perception, not the study of quantum physics. So when you have fields of study that begin to come together saying the same thing, and they're not necessarily in conversation with one another in academic journals and settings and things like that, then something's going on, right? But, you know, Dr. Hoffman would say the moon doesn't exist if you're not looking at it. The tree doesn't make a sound when it falls in the forest if you don't hear it. And his postulation, based on science, not based on philosophy, not based on conjecture, but based on science, the foundation for it for science is that the primary component of the universe is not material. It's not matter. It's not protons and electrons and neutrons. And therefore, we cannot fully understand our world and what it is that we're in through the scientific method of measurability and repeatability. So we put so much emphasis on that, so much stock in that, so much foundation in that, and we should, from the perspective of the way our macro world, as the way the world out there at a large scale is understood and studied and looked at, but when we get to these deeper questions, when we get to these deeper questions, and we look at it from a quantum perspective, Things don't work the way that things don't work that way. And so what Dr. Hoffman postulates and what this Nobel Prize in physics hints at is that the primary component of existence and of reality of what Elon Musk famously called base reality. I'm sure he got that from someone else, but he popularized that when he was on Joe Rogan's show talking about a simulation, which I'll talk about in a minute. Uh, base reality is consciousness. It's thought. It's to go back to the Bible, it's logos or logos. Consciousness, thought. If, if everything is part of the logos, if everything is part of consciousness, if everything is part of the mind of God or the universal mind, then of course God's going to know <laughs> that this part of God, this part of the conscious universe is spinning counterclockwise and they're in entanglement. So therefore this one's going to go clockwise. I mean, that's really oversimplified because there's a cause and effect relationship that's going on. That's non local. There's a cause and effect relationship that's going on. That's non local. That violates everything we know 
about cause and effect. <laughs> so some people are picking up with this. You know, there's this simulator idea out there. We live inside of a computer simulation that was created for us. And, you know, they've grabbed onto this research and they've adapted that to their theories and ideas about reality, that reality doesn't exist, that we're just living inside some kind of simulation. But regardless, the whole point of this is that the work of Stream Man has overturned almost a hundred years of presupposition based on what Einstein said, that the world exists out there and it exists in a measurable and quantifiable reality. And according to these physicists and according to the people that awarded them the Nobel Prize, that model of reality, that model has been proven to be false. So here's my point. I think, I believe that everything that can be shaken will be shaken. (laughs) I do believe, I can't explain it, I could be completely wrong, but I do believe that we are seeing a changing of the ages, that we are in the age of Aquarius. And as a result of being in a new age, everything has to change. Everything has to change. Every institution, every belief system is going to be plucked up, rooted out, destroyed, and a new world is going to be rebuilt on top of that. And that includes scientific theory, scientific practice, and the scientific model. For sure, materialism is becoming less and less of a thing. So here's what I'm saying. We build our belief systems based on things that then turn out to be shaken. So, for example, if the observer, if consciousness, if it is true that consciousness is the base of reality, and not energy, and not matter, and not that which can be quantified or measurable. That that which can be quantified and measurable, which we know is energy and matter, is the mere result for the child that comes from the matrix or the womb of consciousness. That it's the byproduct of consciousness, but in and of itself, it's the effect, not the cause. That explains so many things. That explains the law of attraction. That explains miracles. That explains psychic communications. It opens the door for non-physical reality. And the thing is, is that science more and more is closing the door on itself, or at least closing the door on many of the scientific methods or the certainty of materialism. Let me say it that way. It's closing the door more and more on materialism. And for me, that's really exciting because I find atheism and materialism and randomness to be extremely depressing and horrifying. Uh, I was talking to somebody this week and they asked me if I was an atheist and I'm like, I'm not an atheist. Uh, but I know I'm not an atheist for two primary reasons. Uh, 
and now I can add a third. But number one, I have too much experience with supernatural, parapsychological, uh, paranormal activity to ever lock myself into materialism, ever. Like, to do that would be to deny myself. I would have to deny myself and my own experience, and that's what I did in religion. I denied myself and my own experience because people smarter than me or people that knew God better than I did or some old dudes who had experienced God wrote down in a book, and I had to follow that. So I denied who I was. I denied my own experiences and all of that to embrace a philosophy and a belief system that contradicted and violated my experiences. And I'm not going to do that again. So to become an atheist, I'd have to deny myself and I'd have to deny my own experiences. Now, the other reason I'm not an atheist is it is so depressing. And I know people get free from it and I don't understand that. I don't know if they had some subconscious thing ingrained in them that they're just so afraid of hell or so afraid of judgment that the idea that God, there isn't a God out there that we're accountable to or, or whatever gives them peace. I can kind of understand that. Um, and I'm, you know, everybody's different. So everybody's going to have different reasons. I'm sure there are some people that, that, you know, get peace because they have this horrific view of God. Thank you, church that scares them. Right. And so if God doesn't exist, they don't have to be scared anymore. But for me, it's just incredibly depressing. It's just incredibly depressing and scary. And, uh, it's difficult for me to find enjoyment and zest and, uh, passion and comfort and excitement. If I just go down this scientific, logical, left-brained, linear, materialistic, sort of atheistic route. So on the one hand, I'm not going to deny myself because that's to make the same mistake I made before. On the other hand, uh, it doesn't work for me. It doesn't work for me. It's depressing. It's scary. It's, it's fatalistic. It's nihilistic. It's, I hate it. Spirituality, God source, universal mind, universe, whatever you want to call the intelligence that Created and is running the universe. Because I believe in a creator. I believe in creation. I believe in intelligent design. That's what I call God. And that excites me. The idea that there is some purpose, regardless of what it is, to our lives and meaning to our lives, that will extend beyond physical, what we know and understand to be physical reality. That excites me. That gets my motor running. That energizes and motivates me. Gives me peace. Gives me hope. And those are things I'm not willing to give up. So, number one, <laughs> I didn't mean to go into, like, I don't know where this is coming from. Like, reasons Aaron's not an atheist. I don't know why I'm doing this. But, number one, I'd have to deny myself. Number two, it doesn't work for me. I find it incredibly scary and fatalistic and horrible. I'd rather believe in a God that's going to send some people to hell as long as I'm saved (laughs) than be an atheist. I honestly would. I find that more comforting than atheism. So it doesn't work for me at all. 
And I think that's okay. I think it's okay to say this belief system doesn't work for me. It doesn't give me meaning. Uh, it doesn't give me passion. It doesn't help me get up in the morning and doesn't help me face my problems, stuff like that. People can look at that and say, well, you're weak and you need a crutch and all that stuff. And I don't care. Um, but then the third thing is, the third thing is based on all the research I've been doing and I've been doing it based on my bias. I don't think, you know, bias is always a bad thing because a lot of us resonate with different things and we're going to study what we're interested in, but I'm really interested in consciousness. Right. And so I've been looking at experiments that have been done around consciousness, around neuroscience, with brain scans and all kinds of different stuff. And I keep highlighting the work of Dr. Donald Hoffman, but there's other groups out there. There's the, you know, it'd just be fun to go into all the science of this at some point. Um, but, and, and then I saw this Nobel Prize thing, realism Local realism is being upended. It's being upended. The world doesn't exist out there like we think it does. It's not quantifiable like we think it is. And the observer plays an integral role in shaping reality. Not studying cause and effect independent of us. (laughs) We're actually participating in the cause and effect because from my perspective, we're all conscious you know the world is conscious so what do you want to call that consciousness that intelligence god's probably come becoming an outdated word it probably is um but whether you want to call it source whether you want to call it the universe whether you want to call it the divine mind or you want to call it god or maybe you don't you know you, you believe and follow something different but anyway this is my channel <laughs> My page, I mean. And so I'm putting my thoughts out there. And, uh, so I hope you, I hope this entertained you. I hope that this, um, that you enjoyed this and I hope you benefited from this. Thank you all for, uh, jumping on. Those of you that might have jumped on, I, I can't see the comments right now. Um, and if you're watching this by replay, thank you for watching it. Um, and I'm gonna try to be, I know I say this a lot, but I had reasons. I have personal reasons that I just don't care to disclose publicly for why I haven't been able to be on or create more content. And those personal reasons have resolved themselves. So I am looking forward to doing some more kind of stuff in the future. So anyway, whatever time it is for you, I hope you're doing great. And I'll see you next time.